So, good morning. Beautiful, bright, sunny day here. In this Thursday morning class, we've been going through Shantideva's beautiful text on the Bodhisattva path called Engaging in the Bodhisattva's Deeds. And more recently, in the context of this text, we've been looking at the Bodhisattva vow. And this is a vow taken by a person when they have thought a lot about the situation of ourselves being in samsara cyclic existence and what a dreadful situation this is to be in and generated the strong wish to become free of this situation. And then looking around and seeing there's lots of other beings, sentient beings in this situation as well. And it's a dreadful situation for them. And then they extended that wish to be free of samsara to all other living beings and then decided to take upon themselves the responsibility to bring this about, to do whatever can possibly be done to liberate not just themselves but all other beings and bring them to a state of peace, liberation and finally full enlightenment. So this is the attitude we call bodhicitta. In uh, the first chapter of his text, Shantideva says, All the Buddhas who have contemplated for many eons have seen it, meaning bodhicitta, the mind aspiring for enlightenment, to be beneficial. For by it, the immeasurable masses of beings will easily attain the supreme happiness. So generating this attitude of bodhicitta is extraordinarily beneficial, both for oneself and for others. And at any level we are able to generate it, even just a very artificial, contrived, wish to become enlightened, to help all living beings. And then with that motivation, engaging in different activities, such as listening to teachings or doing meditation, doing prayers, prostrations, offering mandalas and so on, even eating, sleeping, taking medicine with that motivation is so beneficial, so powerful these actions really do become the cause of our future attainment of enlightenment and beneficial for all living beings even now. We're creating this amazing positive energy that spreads out from ourselves over the whole world, over the whole universe, bringing even just a little bit more peace, sanity, happiness, and an easing of suffering to all living beings. So really try your best to have that as your reason, your motivation for being here, participating in this session. Wishing that it will benefit all living beings throughout space, even just a tiny bit.
So this morning, I will try to finish going through the Bodhisattva vow. And then um, uh, next week, there's still a few verses in chapter 4, verses 1 to 18 of chapter 4 that Venerable already taught, and I can do a review of those. And then the following week, the 28th of January, Venerable Children said she'll return and resume teaching. So that's the current plan. But, of course, it can change. (laughs) So don't hold too tight. Okay, so um, we've been going through the secondary or auxiliary auxiliary, uh, bodhisattva uh, precepts, or these are actually called misdeeds. Um, And uh, they are related to the six perfections, most of them. So eight, um, so there's 46 secondary misdeeds altogether, and eight of these are related to the perfection of wisdom. Meaning, you know, if we commit these actions, then it's interfering with or hindering our development of wisdom. So these are uh, numbers 27 to 34. We already did the first six, and now we have two more. Starting with first, uh, sorry, uh, secondary misdeed number 33. That's where we'll begin today. So this one, number 33, says, not going to Dharma gatherings or teachings. Dr. Rinpoche says, the main cause of wisdom is listening to teachings. So staying away from them, hinders the development of wisdom. <laughs> so we have to learn the Dharma. We have to hear the Dharma a lot, again and again and again, um, in order for our wisdom to grow. So if we you know, refuse to go to teachings, then how can we develop wisdom? And if we do this out of pride or anger or animosity, then it becomes a misdeed that is afflicted. Uh, It's together with afflictions. Um, But if it's out of laziness, just can't be bothered, want to do something else like watch TV, um, then it's a misdeed without uh, afflictions. But there are some exceptions to this. If we're very sick, or if we don't know that the teaching is happening, <laughs> we haven't been told. Um, or if we suspect that the person might make mistakes, if we suspect that the person um, you know, has mis- un- misunderstandings, misinformation, so it may be faulty teachings. Or if we have heard this particular topic many times before, we have already studied it, we have a good understanding of it, it's not necessary. It wouldn't be a fault to not go to those teachings. If we are well-trained and already have a lot of knowledge, or if we are practicing meditation seriously, trying to attain concentration. So if we're in retreat, very strict, serious retreat, um, and we want to stay in retreat and we don't go to teachings, then 
That would not be a fault. Um, he also says another exception is if we are incapable of understanding it due to our intellectual faculties. But I remember once I was um, in Australia uh, listening to teachings by Geshe Tashitsering. When he was studying, he was teaching the basic, so-called basic program, but it's actually advanced <laughs> philosophical teachings. It's quite lengthy, complicated program. And one day he made the comment that, you know, he says sometimes people's, you know, some students, they say, oh, this is too difficult. I don't understand it, so I'm not going to come to teachings anymore. And he said, I don't remember the exact words, but something to the effect that that's actually a wrong reason for not coming to teachings. If you don't understand, you should come. <laughs> that's how understanding arises, is you keep coming to teachings, listening again and again and again, and slowly it starts to make sense. So he said this, you know, <laughs> not understanding the teachings is not a valid reason <laughs> to stay away. It should be just the opposite. But maybe, maybe you know, in some cases, let, let's say it's something highly technical, like, you know, highest yoga tantra, and, you know, your, your level of understanding is not up to that, and you feel it would be more worthwhile to study more basic teachings first and then leave that for later. That could be a, a valid reason. Another exception is if we think that our teacher would not agree um, and he says that uh, we should check with our teacher before going to study with another teacher for the first time. So if, you know, the teachings are being given by someone that you don't yet have a Dharma connection with and um, you already have a good Dharma connection with another teacher, before going to teachings by that new teacher, you should check with your uh, first teacher. So that's that's so... Uh, good approach. So it seems that this vow, my, my, my understanding from what it says here, that it seems to refer mainly to teachings given by one's own teacher, and not just any teachings by any teacher. Okay, so if your own teacher is giving teachings, and you don't go uh, because of some lousy excuse, <laughs> like laziness or pride or anger or animosity, <laughs> you don't have a good reason not to go, then um, then that would be the misdeed. Because, you know, if you're in a place like Dharamsala or Kathmandu or even San Francisco or New York City, there could be lots of teachings going on every day. <laughs> and nowadays with uh, online teachings, you know, every day, many, many, many teachings are happening. And so uh, it's just impossible to listen to all of them, attend all of them. So it seems to be mainly with regard to your teacher's teachings. But even if we do not attend uh, a certain teaching, it's still good to have an attitude of respect for that teacher and also rejoice, feel happy, how wonderful it is that that teaching is happening and students are listening and practicing and so on. Then number 34 says, despising your spiritual mentor or the meaning of the teachings 
and relying instead on their mere words. That is, if a teacher does not express him or herself well, not trying to understand the meaning of what he or she says, but criticizing. So Dr. Ramesh says there's two ways that this could happen, two ways that we could create this misdeed. One, one is to scorn the person who is teaching the Dharma and refuse to, listen, uh, refuse to consider this person as our spiritual guide, you know, having an impolite, critical attitude towards the person who's teaching us the Dharma. So it's more like towards the person. Um, the second way is if we give greater importance to the form of the teaching, like the words, the style, and less to the actual content or meaning. So, um, for example, this is my own commentary. <laughs> Many teachers, um, Tibetan teachers, but it's probably true with other Asian teachers, um, there are many who don't speak our language, who don't speak English at all. And even those who do speak English, probably usually they don't speak it perfectly, you know, like Oxford English. <laughs> um, and so if we let our minds get caught up in being critical about their accent, their grammar, uh, their choice of words, um, and if we kind of put more emphasis on that than on the content of, of what they're actually saying, the meaning of the words, then this becomes detrimental. So Alex Berzin says, we weaken our abilities to discriminate correctly when we judge spiritual teachers by their language. We may ridicule and reject those who speak with a heavy accent making many grammatical mistakes, even though what they explain is correct. And we might run after those who speak elegantly, but total nonsense. <laughs> okay, so this can happen, right? You probably encountered people who do this. Um, I was thinking about my own experience. I mean, when I started learning Dharma, the only people who were teaching were Tibetans. Most of them didn't know English, so they had a translator, but the translator was usually Tibetan too, and they didn't always speak very good English. <laughs> but I don't remember being hung up on that. You know, I was just so, wow, these teachers are amazing. You know, I could just see the qualities oozing out of them, and I just wanted to know so much what they were saying that, you know, how it came out didn't really bother me. <laughs> But nowadays, it's perhaps more, more possible that this kind of thing would happen, that you might um, reject what a teacher is saying just because it's not perfect, it doesn't come, come across perfectly. And in fact, you know, it's, it's not a good thing to do to ridicule anybody, to, to have a, a you know, critical, scornful attitude of anybody, whether they're Dharma teachers or not. You know, it's just not a nice thing to do. So we should always try to have respect for everybody. And yeah, not be so concerned about the words. And when I was reading this, I kind of, well, 
you know, it kind of made me realize, yeah, I do sometimes, not so much about accents or grammar, but about choice of words. So I, I, I've gotten kind of really picky, fussy about, because I'm a teacher myself, and I also write books and edit books and so on. So I've become kind of choosy about words, and certain words, <laughs> you know, especially I think because of my Catholic background and somebody uses the word sin, <gasps> oh, please, don't use that word. <laughs> you know, it just triggers off <laughs> all kinds of stuff, which, you know, don't belong in, in Buddhism. And so I can sometimes get kind of, you know, critical about that. But I, yeah, so I realized I have to be very careful and not reject the meaning, the content, just because I don't like the, the choice of words. And what I do sometimes is I'll just retranslate it in my own mind. Yeah. Or if it's a prayer and that word is there, I'll, you know, replace it with something else, <laughs> retranslate it using words that, um, that work for me, that speak to my heart. So that's something you can always do, you know, if a word or a particular style doesn't work for you, just retranslate it, get the meaning. You know, what is the essential meaning there? And stay with that. And, you know, word, the, the specific words are not so important as we can see, because nowadays there's so many different translators and they're using different words. And um, so there's plenty of choice. Okay, so those eight numbers, 27 to 34, are related to the perfection of wisdom. So we should try to avoid those so that our wisdom can grow and be strong and healthy. So then the last 12 of these 46 misdeeds uh, interfere with the ethics of helping others, which is actually one of the three types of ethics, ethical conduct. Um, usually there's three kinds of ethical conduct, refraining from what is non-virtuous, harmful, like killing, stealing, and so forth, and doing what is virtuous and helpful. And then this third one is uh, the ethics of helping others. So this is what is included in bodhisattva's ethics. Okay, so number 35... It says, avoiding taking, oh, sorry, <laughs> not helping those who are in need. And in Alex Berzin's um, explanation, he mentions eight type of persons that need help. And these are from the commentaries, eight types of persons. But I think these are just examples. So one is if someone's trying to make a decision yeah, they're trying to, they're weighing up different options and trying to come to a decision. And, and it's about something positive, not like which bank should I rob? Um, which person should I murder? <laughs> but something beneficial, constructive. And, um, and they ask your, your help. Okay, so you should try to help them. The second one is traveling. Somebody's traveling. Maybe they, need help with directions. Um, the third one is learning a foreign language that we know. 
if you're fluent in French and someone's trying to learn French. Uh, the, the fourth one is carrying out some task that has no moral fault. In other words, it's not a immoral, unethical task that they are doing. They're trying to fix the water system or whatever. <laughs> um, the next one is uh, keeping watch over a house, a temple, or their possessions. Maybe they're concerned about robbers. And they want help with protecting these things. Um, the next one is stopping a fight or argument. So people are having an argument. Or maybe they've, you know, broken up their, their relationship and now they're trying to reconcile their relationship. Uh, and then there's, the next one is someone's planning some kind of celebration or event, like a wedding, and they need help with making arrangements. And the last one is doing charity work. Someone's trying to help local homeless people or whatever, and they ask for, your, for help. So these are just some examples, but I think, yeah, if somebody is asking for help, and if we neglect to help due to anger or spite or laziness or indifference, then it's a misdeed. But there are exceptions, valid exceptions. One is if we're too sick to help, or if we've already promised our assistance elsewhere, busy helping some other person, some other situation. Um, or if we send somebody else to help, we say, I can't help right now, but I'll ask this person to go and help you. Or if we're engaged in some positive task that's more urgent, yeah, maybe we're studying or preparing for a talk, and someone says, please, can you help me with my wedding? Well, <laughs> we have to weigh up what's more <laughs> important, more valuable. Um, or if we are unable to help, someone asks us to help repair their car, <laughs> and we just have no knowledge or skill in that at all then not helping is not a fault. And uh, there's also no fault if the task is something harmful, doing something harmful or contradictory to the Dharma or our monastic vows. Like if somebody asks you to help them with something and it involves, you know, being alone with a member of the opposite sex in a secluded place, that would be contrary to our vows. So it's okay to say no. Or if the person asking help is capable of finding help elsewhere or managing on their own. So there's kind of a lot of exceptions here. So I kind of summarized <laughs> to make it easier. So in short, um, there's a situation where somebody asks for our help and they're asking us to help with something that isn't contra 
contradictory to the Dharma or to our precepts. Okay, so the help would not be contrary to the Dharma, not contrary to our monastic precepts. We are able to help them physically. We, we can give them the help they need. And mentally, you know, knowledge-wise, we have the knowledge to help them. We're not overly busy with other urgent tasks. The person can't manage on their own. I mean, some of these people ask for help, but they actually don't need it. <laughs> and there's no one else around who could help them. So if there is someone else who can help them, then it's not a fault. So if this is the situation, and yet we still refuse to help them because of some affliction like anger, laziness, or indifference. So that's when it's a fault. So we have a lot of outs. <laughs> and Dr. Ramshe mentions a few other exceptions. Um, if it's better for the person's spiritual development not to receive assistance, so maybe, you know, if you're a teacher and they're, they're your student and you might feel that you know the person quite well and you might feel that, you know, not helping them might actually be better to help them reduce incorrect attitudes or increase good qualities. I was thinking, like, even with parents, you know, this could come up if your child is doing their homework and they're trying to figure out some math problem or find the answer to some question and they want to make it easy for themselves and just ask, what's, what's the answer? <laughs> and you feel, well, it would be better for them to figure it out themselves, do their own research. Yeah, so that's probably true. Another exception, he says, if many people would be upset and critical. <clears throat> I, mean, I couldn't really think of a situation like that, but maybe like if somebody asks venerable children, the abbess of Shravasti Abbey, to help with something, and maybe she's willing to help, but doing that might draw criticism from other people. You know, some people might get upset and criticize. Can you think of an example? Yeah. So a number of years ago, uh, one of our f dear friends brought a friend who was dying here from cancer. He just wanted some assurance, some support. He was from more of a fundamental Christian background. And then I went to his house a few times to be with his family as he was dying. But when it came to the memorial service and funeral at the church, I spoke with Venerable, just said, you know, having a Buddhist nun show up to this thing probably would not be a pretty conservative Christian church and just didn't want to make any confusion or in a time of such, you know, sorrow for the community too. So yeah, stay home. Yeah. So out of our wisdom, we might feel I'd be better not to help in that situation. It's difficult to know. So that one's a little complicated. <laughs> um, but yeah, it is good to know that we should try to help as much as we can, when we can. But there are reasons not to help, good, ve good reasons, valid reasons. And if we have trouble deciding that on our own, we could ask our teacher or another spiritual friend for advice. You know, should I do this or not? Okay, the next one, number 36, is avoiding taking care of the sick. Now, this is a specific situation where somebody is sick. 
Um, but does this mean we have to take care of all the sick people in the world? Or even all the sick people in Pandere County? <laughs> Probably a lot right now. <laughs> or even all the sick people in the Abbey? Not necessarily. <laughs> okay, so um, one thing is the motivation. If refusing to take care of somebody who's sick is due to anger, we're angry at that person, we don't want to help them, or spite, we want to make them angry, <laughs> or laziness, or indifference. So those are the motivations that would make this a misdeed. And then there are exceptions, so even if we don't have one of those motivations, um, if we ourselves are sick, especially if we have COVID <laughs> or some other infectious disease, you don't want this that kind of person to go and help other people who are sick. Okay, so that would be a good, a good excuse, a good reason not to help somebody else who's sick. Um, or if we're able to find somebody else who can help that person, very capable. Okay, so if somebody down in Newport is sick and they have a neighbor or a family member or doctors and nurses who can go and help them, we don't have to go and help them. Or if we're already busy caring for another sick person and we just don't have the time fully occupied with that. Or if we're not capable of the work. Okay, so if helping this sick person requires certain knowledge or skills that we don't have, probably better not to get involved and find somebody else who, who does have those knowledge and skills. And also sometimes the person is just is capable of looking after themselves. They might be sick, but they're not that sick and they're able to, you know, get up and get food and go to the bathroom by themselves and so on. And sometimes people prefer that as well. They actually like to be more independent and take care of themselves. So we shouldn't be overly fussy and <laughs> probably make ourselves a nuisance. <laughs> also, another exception is if we're engaged in some positive task, like Dharma study, and look, looking after this person would be an obstacle to that. So these are things that would make it a not a misdeed. On the other hand, you might be willing, especially if it's a close friend or close family member, you might be willing to put your Dharma study aside for a period of time to take care of this person. So this is just you know, the criterion for what, when it's a misdeed and when it's not. Okay, the next is number 37, not alleviating the sufferings of others. And Alex mentions seven types of persons who require special care. Uh, I guess this, this is from the text, the commentaries. So first is blind people, deaf people, amputees and cripples, I don't know, do we use that word cripple anymore, or is it, no? Nah. Huh? Other abled? Other abled, okay, that's nice. Um, uh, tired travelers, 
there were probably a lot of those in Tibet <laughs> they didn't have, at least in the old days. Um, and then those suffering from any of the five obstacles preventing mental stability. So those we went through recently, I think last week. Um, let's see if I can remember them. <clears throat> sense desire, strong sense desire. Um, ill will or harmful intent. Uh, excitement and uh, regret or restlessness and regret. Uh lethargy and sleepiness, and then doubt, deluded doubt. So if someone is suffering from one of those, uh, the next one is those with ill will and strong prejudices. <laughs> and then those who have fallen from positions of high status. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> Things going on in our country today. So looking at these, I was thinking that you know, uh, if there are people uh, in these in these situations experiencing these problems, um, they would have to be open to receiving help from us. Yeah, it wouldn't be right to push help on them if they're not open, if they're not interested, and maybe even hostile to us. So. Those are some of the conditions that might, you know, make it inappropriate to offer help. Or although we can offer help, you know, it's good to at least offer to help these people. And if they refuse, they say, no thanks, I don't need your help. Then we can um, help them on the spiritual level. We can put their names on the prayer list and dedicate merits for them and, and so on. So, for example, if one of the neighbors uh, is dying and uh, we might offer to go and do Medicine Buddha Puja for them, <laughs> they might say, no thanks, <laughs> we have our local pastor or whatever. But we can still do the on our own up here. We can do the prayers and dedicate the merits for them. So there's always a way to help, some way to help. But... Um, here it's mainly if we refuse to help, and it's especially if it's out of some afflicted motivation like anger or spite, laziness, or indifference. And I think the other exceptions uh, mentioned before, like if you're too sick, you're too busy with more important things, then then these would be, or if the person has other people helping them, they don't actually need your help. Okay, then number 38, um, not explaining what is proper conduct to those who are reckless. So the word reckless, sometimes it's translated as, th there's, there's one virtuous mental factor which is uh, usually translated as conscientiousness, bhakya in Tibetan. Um, and then there's the opposite. It's a afflicted mental state. I think it's one of the second se secondary afflictions, non-conscientiousness or recklessness. Um, so this is when one doesn't care about karma. You don't care about 
maybe you don't know about, or even if you do know about, you may not care, you know, about refraining from bad karma, non-virtuous karma, and creating virtuous karma. So you're just very careless and reckless about your behavior. So somebody like that, um, because their behavior will bring them unhappiness and problems, both in this life and also in future lives. Um, and so we should, again, it's sort of, it depends on the person being open um, and doing it in a skillful way, but we should try to help such a person and not have an attitude of anger, aversion, spite, arrogance, and so on. So Alex says, uh, to reach such people, we need to be skillful and uh, modify our approach to suit their specific situations. For example, if our neighbor is an avid hunter, we do not preach to him with outrage that he will burn in hell. <laughs> the person will probably never have anything to do with us again. Rather, we befriend our neighbor He gives a suggestion on how to do that, uh, telling him what a kind surface he provides for making gay meat available for his family and friends. Anyway, you can decide if you want to do that or not. Um, <laughs> anyway, be friendly. You know, good to maybe offer Christmas presents. You know, if we have some extra things offered to the to the neighbor, so just be on good terms and be friendly. And then once the person is receptive to our advice, then you can slowly suggest other ways to relax and make others happy without taking lives. So this is just a suggestion, but anyway, the point is we have to do this in a skillful way. <laughs> and there are exceptions. Um, if helping this person would lead to difficulties, like, yeah, if it is a neighbor <laughs> and it's important to be on good terms with a neighbor and trying to help them in this way would create hostility, create uh, problems that would interfere with one's own life and so on. Maybe that's an example. Or another exception is if we don't know what is best for them. We just don't know, don't have the knowledge to how, how to advise this person. Or maybe we know, but we don't know how to explain it properly in a way they would understand it. Or if there's already a qualified person helping them, maybe the person already has a teacher, a spiritual guide, who's giving them advice, helping them, we don't need to get involved. Or if the person doesn't like us, is not receptive to our help. So that makes sense, you know. Because <laughs> again, trying to offer advice to people who may have aversion, hostility, negative attitudes towards you will probably just backfire and make things worse rather than better. So there's lots of um, 
considerations to make in this situation. And definitely it wouldn't be right to go around preaching to people what they should do and what they shouldn't do. And I really think, I mean, I think being an example is really the best way to teach and guide others. I mean, I, I assume our neighbors know that we don't eat meat. Yeah. <laughs> so some of them are hunting, killing animals and eating the meat of animals. And just knowing that we're, li- we're sitting up here, not only do we not hunt, but we don't even eat meat. We don't even buy it or eat it. And if I don't know if it, they've ever tried to offer meat to us, and you know, but if they did, and we said no, thanks, we don't eat meat, we're vegetarian. I mean, just knowing that, just knowing that there are people who are vegetarian and they're happy and healthy and <laughs> thriving, you know, it leaves some imprints on people's minds and might cause them to think. So, and if they have the seeds or their children you know, children, neighbors, whatever, they have the seeds in their mind to go in that direction themselves, then that itself is a way of benefiting others. So I like that um, that saying we have in English, actions speak louder than words. Yeah, just being someone who's living ethically, non-harmfully, compassionately, kind, with kindness, generosity, just being that, you know, can inspire others. Because there's there's research about that, you know, like an act of kindness. Someone doing an act of kindness inspires others to do acts of kindness. So, okay. Next, number 39. Not benefiting in return those who have benefited you. So this is where we have, sorry, we have received help, benefit from others. And if we don't help them in return, this would be a misdeed. Um, And this could happen out of anger or ill will or lack of conscientiousness or laziness, but there are some exceptions. Um, if we uh, if we lack the knowledge and ability, for example, somebody's repairing their car, <laughs> we don't know how to help, then uh, you know it's not a fault. Although we could always just say, wow, I can see you're having difficulty there. I'd really like to help, but I'm sorry. I don't know how. Do you want me to call <laughs> somebody else? It's good to at least show a willingness to help. Or if we're physically unwell or weak, they might need somebody who's really strong and healthy. And we, we just don't have those qualities to help them. And also another exception is um, sometimes people don't want anything in return. You know, we want to offer them something in return to help them in return. And they say, no, thank you. You know, I don't need anything. So we shouldn't force, force ourselves on them. So at least to have the willingness to, to keep in mind that we have received help from those people 
be willing to return their kindness and ready to do so when they need help. Okay, number 40, not relieving the sorrow of others. So this could be, um, I guess the commentaries mainly mention grief when, you know, somebody has lost a loved one or some material that they value, like money or some possession. Also, I, I think we can add a job, although that's a bit like a possession. <laughs> so if somebody's lost something or someone that was very valuable to them and they're feeling sadness, grief over this, and if we don't help, at least try to help such people due to some affliction like spite or laziness or indifference, and then this would be a misdeed. So we should at least be ready to help them. But again, sometimes people might not want our help. They might have hostility towards us. They might have other people helping them, you know, enough that they don't need extra help. So in those situations, I think it would not be a fault. Yeah, so it says the same exceptions as before apply here. It also takes certain skills, you know, to help somebody who's sad or grieving. You know, sometimes you might say the wrong thing. You might mean well. You really want to comfort them, but the words you say might just make them feel worse. So, yeah, before, you know, getting involved and helping someone in this situation, it's good to have some training, have some knowledge of what helps and what doesn't. There's actually this, there's a book called um, How to Be Sick. So I think some of you might have read it. It's in our library, written by a woman um, who's, I mean, at the time she wrote the book, she'd been sick, chronically sick for 15 years, and I think she's still <laughs> very, very, very sick. And it just totally changed her life because she was a professor, university professor, and had a family. And the sickness just totally, you know, wiped out all her energy. She had to spend most of her time in bed. And um, fortunately, she had learned meditation. She'd done some mindfulness, Vipassana courses beforehand. So she used what she had learned in those courses to deal with her sickness. And then she wrote this book about it. Very, very helpful. Very inspiring. But, you know, included in the book are things that people will often say, trying to be helpful. <laughs> you know, trying to be helpful, but very unhelpful. So it's a good book to read from that point of view, even if you're not sick yourself. It's good to know what not to say, <laughs> what not to do. There's <laughs> somebody who is sick or you know, not just physical, you know, illness, but other kinds of disabilities, physical or mental. So, yeah. Did you find that, that that was helpful? Did did you read the book? Yeah. Did you think that was helpful? Her advice about what not to say. Okay, the next one, number 41. 
not giving material possessions to those in need. So this is kind of similar to one of the root downfalls, number two, which involve not sharing wealth or dharma. But there, the motivation was miserliness. So for it to be a root downfall number two, um, we don't share our wealth due to miserliness. And here, if there's some other motivation involved, like anger or spite, laziness or indifference, um, so if we have one of those motivations in our mind and we don't give material possessions to those in need, then it becomes a uh, this secondary misdeed. But there are exceptions. For example, if we don't have what they need, <laughs> they ask us for something and we don't have it, then of course it's not a fault. Or if they if we suspect that they might misuse the gift if they ask for something, but we maybe because we know the person and we've seen how they behave and we think they might misuse what we give them, then it's not a fault. Or if they're asking for something that's dangerous, like weapons or, or poison or something, and we're worried they might harm themselves or harm others with this thing, we don't have to give it. Or if it conflicts with our monastic precepts, like we're not supposed to give away our robes. If someone says, oh, that's a really cool shawl. I love yellow. Could I have it? <laughs> we're not supposed to give. Okay, maybe we can rummage around in the extra clothing and try to find a yellow shawl that isn't a chuga or a namjar or whatever. <laughs> Next, number 42, not working for the welfare of your circle of friends, disciples, servants, and so forth. Uh, so Dr. Rinpoche says this mainly refers to Dharma students. Probably the original uh, situation was you're, you're a Dharma teacher and you have a circle of of disciples or students. But in Alex's uh, explanation, he says it can include our circle of relatives, friends, co-workers, employees, as well as disciples and so on. So people close to you, associated with you. And he says it's a great fault to neglect their needs out of spite, laziness, or indifference. So we should provide for their physical needs like food, clothing, and so forth, and also look after their spiritual welfare. So, you know, especially if you are a Dharma teacher, provide teachings, advice for the spiritual well-being of these people. And he says, how can, we be, how can we pretend to be helping all sentient beings if we ignore the needs of those closest to us? So that would be a, a strange situation. You're sitting on your meditation cushion 
may all sentient beings have happiness and the causes of happiness and so on and so forth, but then, you know, neglecting the people who are actually nearby and in need. But there are exceptions to this. For example, if you're too ill, unable to do this, or if these people already have what they need. So if they're actually not deprived materially or spiritually, or if their motives are questionable, maybe if somebody's asking for something and you suspect their motivation might not be virtuous, proper, they might misuse what it is they're asking for. Okay, then number 43, not acting in accordance with the wishes of others, if doing so does not bring harm to yourself or others. So Alex says, as long as what others wish us to do or what they like is not harmful to them or to others, it is a fault not to agree. Everyone does things differently or has individual tastes. If we do not honor this because of spite, laziness, or indifference, we start petty arguments about things like where to eat, or we are insensitive to their preferences and arouse their discomfort or resentment when ordering the menu. So I guess he's using the example of you're with a bunch of people and and they want to go and have a meal, trying to decide which restaurant to go to. (laughs) Everybody else wants to go to one restaurant. And if you say, no, I don't want to go there. I want to go there. (laughs) So this is creating problems. Or even if you you are in the restaurant and you're trying to decide what to order and you're, you know, being fussy and causing problems for others. So that's one example. And volume five uh, in Praise of Great Compassion says, we should try to be pleasant, polite, and considerate of others' wishes and feelings with genuine care for them. So I think just have that as a general rule when you're with others and some decision has to be made, something has to be done, to not be attached to your own wishes and ideas about how things should be done if it becomes a problematic for others. So put those aside, go along with what others, as long as it's in accordance with Dharma, of course, you know, if people want to do something that's contrary to the Dharma or contrary to monastic rules and you don't go along with them, then of course that is what we should do. Um, We should uh, stick to our principles, our ethical conduct, and our precepts, and so on. And number 44, not praising those with good qualities. So Alex says, if we fail to commend others when they have done something well or concur with someone else's acclaim of them, somebody else is praising them, and we refuse to... uh, go along with that and agree with that. And our motivation is anger, spite, indifference, or laziness. We weaken our interest and enthusiasm for them to continue to grow. 
who are not helping that person to grow, to flourish, develop more good qualities. But there's some exceptions. He says, if others are embarrassed, if we, you know, if it would cause them a great deal of embarrassment to praise them, either privately or in public, then we don't have to do that. Or if they would, if praising them would cause them to have more pride or vanity, um, although we don't have to, in that kind of situation, we don't have to praise them publicly, but we could do it privately. Another exception, as Dr. Ramesha mentions, if we're too ill, or if the person is in the middle of a conversation, <laughs> having a conversation with somebody else, and we want to get in there and say something complimentary to them, that wouldn't be polite. So we should wait till their conversation is finished. Another, another exception would be if we're in a silent retreat. <laughs> so <laughs> right now it wouldn't be appropriate to be praising each other. We're supposed to be keeping silent. You can do it with a note or mentally praise and rejoice. He also says if the qualities are fallacious, so I guess that means if the person is just pretending to have certain qualities that they don't have, we don't have to praise them. <laughs> or if we feel it would be more helpful to the person not to praise them, if you know, if it would make them more arrogant. I guess that's already been covered. So volume five says, when others have good qualities, knowledge, or dharma realizations, we should rejoice and praise them. And similarly, let's rejoice and praise them if they have specific practical skills or artistic or athletic talents and so forth. So it's good to give people encouragement as long as what they're doing is beneficial or at least not harmful. We don't want to praise harmful things, negative things, but good things. Good things they're doing, we should praise them. Okay, number 45, not acting with whatever means are necessary according to the circumstances to stop someone from doing harmful actions. So Dr. Ramesha says this mainly refers to a monastery or a dharma center in which somebody is acting contrary to the dharma. And he says we should reprimand that, reprimand the person, but not out of anger. So if we are feeling anger, then we should first work on that, cool down our anger, put our anger aside, and then talk to the person and initially try to use gentle means, talk to them in a gentle way, in a kind way, asking them to stop that misbehavior. If that doesn't work, then you can speak more firmly, but still without anger in the mind. And if even that doesn't work, you might end up asking the person to leave, but do it with compassion. And then he mentioned some exceptions. 
So he says, if we're waiting for the right moment to act and it hasn't come yet, <laughs> like maybe we're still angry, so <laughs> better to wait <laughs> till the anger has cooled down. Um, the, another exception, the person who has misbehaved is so angry that it's hopeless to try and explain anything to them. But then you could wait, wait till they cool down, wait till there's a better moment to talk to them. When we're convinced they will not listen, there's no fault in not taking action. Another exception, if the person sees their mistake, they, have, they are sufficiently ashamed and embarrassed about it. Probably he's referring to the mental factors of integrity and consideration for others, so they have those mental factors, and will very soon be reconciled with others, will, you know, change their behavior. So it's not necessary to, you know, say anything to them. So if we feel that way. Um, another exception is we sense that correcting the people who are behaving this way would lead to quarrels, verbal abuse, fist fights, <laughs> and eventually litigation. So if it really, hopefully that would never happen here, you know, but I guess it could happen in some places that the situation could become very explosive. Or if we believe that it would cause a disturbance and finally a split in the spirit, spiritual community. So those are exceptions. Call in the NVC people, <laughs> the NVC experts. Help! We need help in this situation. <laughs> so then the last one, number 46. Not using miraculous powers, if you possess them, to stop others from doing destruct destructive actions. So this is one I never have to worry about. So, <laughs> so if you do have the, the, you know, Buddhism talks about these different miraculous powers, um, or sometimes they're called uh, super knowledges, super knowledges. So these are like being able to manifest different forms or yeah, do these special things. So if you have such powers, um, then, and, and there are situations where using them would be helpful to stop somebody from doing something destructive. And if you don't use your miraculous powers, then this is a hindrance to your ability to help other sentient beings. So we should try to use whatever talents, abilities, and attainments we have to benefit others. Okay, so that brings us to the end of the secondary bodhisattva deeds, and that, uh, misdeeds, sorry, <laughs> and the end of the this discussion on the, the bodhisattva vow. So we have some free time, some extra time, if anyone has a question. Just a comment about number 33, about not going to Dharma teachings, and one of the exceptions um, mentioned that if you've heard these teachings before and you teach them, Venerable Children has shared with us many, many times the example of these Geshis who are on the stage with this holiness. You know, they've been living the Dharma since they were kids. They know the topic inside out. They teach it. And yet they still go. And yeah. so 
that would be a good argument against the one saying, well, you don't really have to go if you know it so well. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I think His Holiness is kind of an exceptional, <laughs> it's an sex- exceptional situation. Those Geshis or High Lamas who go to His Holiness's teachings, you know, even though they know the subject very well, they probably don't go to every single teaching given in their in their monastery um, not out of disrespect but maybe because of time probably have many duties themselves they have to take care of and and so on so it's just showing that you know there are cases there are situations where not going to a teaching isn't a, a misdeed for number 35 you gave a list of eight examples of um, those in need. What was the fifth one? Uh, The fifth one is keeping watch over a house, temple, or possessions. Yeah. I I can... I don't know if you're doing email now. Yeah, there's this um, uh, file that I got from Alex Berzin's website used to be called Burzen Archives, and now it's called something else, but Studying Buddhism. Yeah, so on his website, there's tons of material. So there are two separate files. One is the root uh, bodhisattva downfalls, and the other one is the secondary one. So you can find that file. Lots of wonderful things in there, all for free. Yeah, one of the things he mentions, the third one, was learning a foreign language, um, which in, yeah, the other commentaries like Dr. Rinpoche's in Volume 5, it didn't mention that one. Um, but there, those commentaries had separate ones for uh, something like a wedding and another event. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I just, yeah, it just seems like there's a lot of different possible situations where somebody might need help. And I think these are just examples, but there's certainly lots of others that are not mentioned here. Help with gardening, help with clearing the forest, chopping down trees, so <laughs> cooking lunch. <laughs> but those would probably be covered by carrying out a task that has no moral fault. That was one of them. So anyway, that's why I tried to summarize them in situations where somebody needs needs help and it's not something contrary to the Dharma, contrary to our uh, our monastic precepts and, and so on. Two questions online. One asks, with regards to misdeed number 28, is practicing the initial and intermediate scope of the Lamrim primarily as a beginner, is that in conflict with this vow? So 28 says, exerting effort principally in another system of practice while neglecting the one you already have, the Mahayana. That's how it's stated in uh, the Red Prayer Book, but the commentaries say it's it's specifically talking about the fundamental vehicle. So... That means if you put too much energy, time and energy into fundamental vehicle teachings and practices to the extent that you're not um, studying and practicing the Mahayana, that would be... So what was the question again? 
This person is asking if they are primarily practicing the initial and intermediate scopes of the Lamrim right now, as they see themselves as a beginner, is that in conflict with this vow? No, because the whole setup of the Lamrim um, is, you know, it's all designed to lead people to enlightenment. Yeah, so even the initial and middle uh, scopes of the Lamrim are regarded as not ends in themselves, not goals in themselves. These are just what you need to train yourself in, what you need to know and understand and practice and train yourself in so that you'll be able to move on to the bodhisattva uh, teachings and practices. So within the context of the Lam Rim, that's all very clearly explained. If you, you know, reading Lam Rim books or studying Lam Rim teachings, it's explained in that way. So even if you're mainly focusing on the initial level, but ideally you understand this is what I have to do first to, you know, eventually get myself on the Bodhisattva's path. And we're always encouraged you know, whenever we do study or practice or, you know, meditate, that we do so with the bodhicitta motivation. So that ensures that we understand the context in which we are we are doing those practices. And the same with our pradimoksha precepts, um, which are part of the fundamental vehicle teachings and practices. But, you know, our, our way of thinking is I'm keeping these precepts um, to ensure that I have good ethical conduct, I'm creating virtue, refraining from non-virtue, so that, you know, this will help me help others now, but also help, help others in the long term, because this becomes a cause for my attainment of enlightenment, so that I can help all living beings in the best possible way. So it is a little tricky, but we do need to understand that. We're not engaging in you know, fundamental vehicle teachings and practices exclusively as goals in themselves, and that's it. You know, that's that's as far as I'm going to go. I'm not going to go further than that. And then someone's asking about the green tara practice. Um, and she says, uh, are there separate empowerments for each of the taras? For example, if you receive, if you have received the white tara empowerment, should you receive the one for green tara as well? Ah, oh, I know there are, I mean, I've heard, yeah, definitely there's different empowerment for white tara and for green tara. And I've heard in other traditions, for example, in, in, I visited a Nyingma center and they had this huge statue of a red Tara that <laughs> seemed to be their main, their main practice. Um, so yeah, there could be initiations for other specific forms of Tara, um, probably are. Um, but yeah, if you receive the initiation of white Tara, I'm not sure if you, if that would still qualify. I mean, of course you can practice green Tara. Anybody can practice green Tara, whether, whether they've received any initiation or not, as long as you're just visualizing the deity outside, not visualizing yourself. But the white, what I heard once, Dr. Rinpoche was giving some teachings about this, and he said there's actually three kinds of initiations. One is called a Wang Chen, great initiation. And that 
that is the kind of initiation that actually qualifies you to practice Tantra. It's like the entrance into Tantra. And only certain initiations or great initiations, um, most of them are highest yoga Tantra, like Yamantaka and uh, Kala Chakra, Guru Samaja. Some Kriya Tantra initiations are also great initiations, like Avalokiteshvara. There's a great initiation of Avalokiteshvara, Medicine Buddha. Great initiations usually are, uh, last two days. There's two parts to it over two days, and you have kusha grass and red strings, and <laughs> it's more, more complicated. <laughs> um, so, strictly speaking, you have to first have a great initiation to enter into tantra, and then do all, you know, the tantric practices such as visualizing yourself as a deity. Um, another kind of initiation is called a jena, which um, we usually translates it as subsequent permission. And um, those most initiations probably fall into that category. Um, and they, yeah, it's it's very complicated. But the green tar most probably most times when a green tar initiation is given, it's a jena. Uh, unless it's a Chitamani Tara, which is highest yoga tantra, but even then, no, that even that that's that's also a Jainong. So, to if you receive a Jainong, but you haven't previously received a great initiation, strictly speaking, you're not qualified to engage in tantric practice to the full extent. Visualizing yourself, you can still visualize the deity outside, but not yourself as the deity. Then the third type of initiation is a tsewang, which is a long life initiation. And an example of that is a white tara, white tara initiation. So he says a white, that, if I remember correctly, I have to check, but um, I think if you attend a, a, that kind of initiation at tsewang, it may not even be a jainong. It may, may be more for the purpose of long life. I'm not sure whether or not you would be qualified to visualize yourself as the deity. So it's a little complicated. <laughs> and so I'm not 100% sure. It's better to check with a teacher uh, if you receive a white tar initiation, and then that would automatically qualify you to practice green tara. It's not definite. It's better to check with a teacher about that. But like I say, when it comes to practicing these deities in the sense of just visualizing them outside of you, in front of you, above your head, anybody can do that with, with or without an initiation. Um, someone is asking that knowing the right thing to say Offering helpful words, offering helpful words aptly, which you mentioned, is a skill which I believe the Buddha had supremely, um, had supremely, and I can't recall the Sanskrit term for it. Do you know what the Sanskrit term is? Upaya, isn't it? Upaya, yeah, upaya, which is sometimes translated as skillful means. Skillful means. Tibetan, I think it's. No, Chinle? Not sure. 
Chinlei, which they sometimes translate as enlightened activities. I think, I'm not sure, I'm not an expert on this, but <laughs> yeah, I think upaya is that term. And there's a sutra, something about upaya, sutra and skillful means. When we were going through the sutras the other day, I saw what we have in our library. <laughs> yeah, I think of skillful means as a combination of compassion and wisdom. That's just my way of thinking of it, that, you know, it's important to have compassion and want to help, wish to help, but one also needs wisdom to know what is the most suitable way to help in different situations. Because, yeah, sometimes we say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, and instead of helping, we might make things worse. So the more we grow those two qualities of compassion and wisdom, and also experience, often just making mistakes, you know, trying things out and then making mistakes and realizing, oh, that doesn't work. <laughs> okay, let's try something else. <laughs> and just experience. Or like the case of that woman I mentioned who wrote the book, How to Be Sick. You know, she was on the receiving end of people's attempts to help. And so she could see from that point of view what helps and what doesn't help. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we'll stop there and make a dedication of our positive energy.